Welcome to Black Exposed for Tuesday, April 18th. I'm your host, Sandra Tyler. We dive into the world of Will Strickland, a former pro basketball player and a hip-hop legend who helped launch Bad Boy Records with P. Diddy. He helped sign the Wu-Tang Clan. He's worked with Notorious B.I.G., Tupac, KRS-One, N.W.A., Prince, Michael Jackson, and that's just to name a few. He's even taught the first accredited course on hip-hop culture at the University of Massachusetts. Tonight, we chat about what Michael Jackson was like behind the scenes, helping bail out Sade from a Jamaican prison, launching Jamiroquai's career, and what did Kanye West really sound like when he started in his career? Was he any good? Plus, we dive into his basketball career and Full Court 21 Canada. You're not going to want to miss this part two. If you know musicians, if you love music, you want to hear about what went down at Bad Boy Records, make sure you tune in to 98.5 CKWR or stream live CKWR.com. And it's now spring. Doesn't feel like it. I don't know where it hid. I don't know where it went. But it's now spring. So let's kick things off tonight with a little bit of Julie Black to get us inspired. This is Sandra Tyler. Black Exposed, 98.5 CKWR. The first time I was called a nigger, it made me feel small, made me feel dirty, made me feel embarrassed, ashamed. I do remember being 12 years old, being uh, allowed to take the TTC now to middle school, and an older uh, white woman wasn't happy with uh, what she would call the noise. We were being rowdy, apparently, to her. Looked right at me and said, shut up, nigger. It hit me, like, hard. It, you didn't call me one or the other. You you, you called me both. Oh, God. It's just, it's so amazing what, what how powerful memories are, eh? Uh, I, I thought about my mom, you know, that someone could call someone's child that, you know? And to me, if she's calling me that, she's calling my mom, my sisters, my grandmother, the lineage. Like, wow, because you're, because you were having a bad day. Those words pretty much silenced me for a good part of my childhood. Like, what is that? Is it my skin? Is it my hair? Is it my, my curves? For the longest time, I wouldn't wear braids. Like, this is like a big step for me to, to embrace my, my ethnicity, the coil of my hair. I would rather people know how it still, how it feels how it made me feel small there were times where I would <laughs> I would feel like I was too loud you know and it, it impacted my confidence being raised religious and being raised to forgive had me write songs of triumph like we gotta hold each other's hands hold each other accountable hold each other up you are not what they said you you know you are beautiful as you are Such a drastic 
of black art and artistry and it's free the Mel Brown Music Festival and Symposium hosted by KPL Central blues hip-hop opera jazz reggae ska R&B established stars exciting emerging talent Faith Amore Denise Williams Sean Jones The Arsenals Douglas Watson James Corbin check back the artist list is updated daily the Mel Brown Music Festival May 26 to 28 get your free tickets now at melbrownfestival.ca hey Canada
Canada. This is Sandra Tyler, and you're listening to Black Exposed on 98.5 CKWR. My name is Will Strickland. I am the creator of the world's first university accredited course on hip hop culture at the University of Massachusetts Amherst called Edutainment. And so we went and we started this little label you might have heard of called Bad Boy Records. Got to get it done. Big says in disparaging words about E40. Let's rock. Don Puffy Combs mm-hmm. paid for your trainer. Help him sign a little group called the Wu Tang. I see champion on champion. It's that time. Tupac thought somebody tried to kill him. Bad boy death broke. He got shot what four times. Giddy and big. It's like that. Yeah, it's like that. Will Strickland, Jason Staten, true, true. That's me. So we last were speaking, you were at Bad Boy Entertainment. But I guess I met you after you came back to Toronto. I never. Really, I I didn't come to Toronto full time until 2001. I started coming okay. to Canada. The first time I came to Canada as an adult was 1995, and okay. the Toronto Raptors were a new NBA team here, and I was trying out for the Toronto Raptors. I didn't come back again until I met someone here from 90 in 98. We started a relationship. End of 99, maybe? I think it was like 99. It's the first time I came up, or the second time I'd come up as an adult here. And I, you know, that relationship and what was going on with like these meetings I was having with a guy I met at a basketball game in New York City, who was born in Queens, but was from Toronto. He ran an ad agency. And we started talking about busing in the 60s at the basketball game. And because we had that, again, this connected tissue, this, the cultural currency we exchanged. He told me what he did, and I said, "Hey, I, you know, I run a consulting firm, and I love to get some of your, you know, get a couple of contracts from you and bring them in on time and under budget. Give me a shot. We exchanged the information. I did that. That's when he asked me, "Hey, would you like to move to Canada? We'd love to have you here. We'll take care of all your expenses and immigration, and everything." And they did everything they said they were going to do. And it was serendipitous because I was with someone at the time who was from Toronto. You know, um, again. That's, there's an energy to that. And it came from having this conversation. Like when people think about hip hop culture, hip hop, it wasn't like a lab somewhere they built this thing. It happened because a young lady by the name of Cindy Campbell wanted school clothes to go back to school. She knew her brother had their dad's sound system coming from Jamaica and he could plug in the amps, put it out in the yard or put it out in like, you know, in front of the building because they live in the projects or put it in the, the, the day room or family room or whatever and hold a little party. And you see the original flyer from August 11th, 1973. It's like 25 cents for the ladies, 50 cents for the fellas. And that was to get clothes for school. And all these separate elements of the culture came together to, you know, Cool Herc brought them together in that. Cindy Campbell's brother, Clyde, a.k.a. Cool Herc, Brought those elements all together in that room that a million people have said they were at that party in a room that could probably fit 40. Wow. But that's how narratives go, right? But the magic of that story, the magic of that experience created an environment for me to live through my culture, to live a, to have a living through my culture. Basketball and hip hop culture and yeah. they are linked forever. Absolutely. Those are things I love. That's a part of my life. You know, I told the story and I tell the story in class whenever I had my first class uh, in teaching how I first met hip hop culture because it didn't have a name when I met her. It was just what we did. It, it wasn't 
democratized. It wasn't corporatized. It, it wasn't it wasn't given a name yet. Just what we did. And I'm walking the street with a push pop. Walking the street, I see these two guys in the stoop, and it looks like they're about to fight because they're talking really aggressive back and forth to one another. And it sounded like Dr. Seuss stuff. Uh-huh. I'm, 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 again, I'm like nine, so I don't know. Right? But I'm watching it, and back in the day, you're like, yo, when you saw somebody about to fight, you go, fight! Like, you want everybody to see the fight. Today, they might call it, they're still around, world star! So we all ran over, and people were watching them. And while they're talking back and forth, at the end of it, instead of fighting, they hug it out and walk in different directions. <laughs> I'm like, I want to do that. Whatever that was, I caught the fever. I still have my first rhyme I ever wrote. My mother has in a little frame, yellowing little piece of paper. I didn't know then that these bars, these lines, be the genesis of everything I would do with my life. It's funny when you look back on it. So I go, my mom is cool. I go to school. You know the rules. I'm not a fool. And when you break those down, like, I was cool with my mother. I was one of the few kids in my neighborhood who had the family unit together. Right? It was rare in my community. I didn't ever want anyone to be able to speak around me, and I didn't understand it. So I went to learn languages. Uh, one of my degrees in school, actually, my master's at entertainment law, and and because I want, I knew I was going to have to deal with contracts. I want people to be able to speak around me, and I didn't understand it. Right? Especially so, in this business, I'm not a fool. You know the rules. Everything that I talked to you about with my life to date has been about what rules. There's no one or five basketball league. There is no nobody ever taught a course in hip hop culture before me. No one ever did an online concert, you know, in black music before me. I like being first at everything except being last, I guess. When I first started Full Court 21, I would go around to all these parks in these cities I didn't know yet and be like, yo, you beat me in one on one. I'll give you free entry into my tournament. So then everybody wants to step up. So here I am at my age from bad boy. you know, leaving there and going to teach at UMass, teaching at UMass, coming to Canada after that, meeting that guy at the Knicks game who worked in Canada and brought me to Canada to start working in this ad agency. At that ad agency, my career came back into play again. Well, we went to get the Microsoft account from them. And one of the games in the Microsoft, it was a role-playing. We did all the role-playing games in Microsoft that year. And one in particular was of interest because it was called that. Railroad Tycoon, and they had um, Flight Simulator. So we had to do a soft launch. Like so Microsoft had put a lot of money into that. So to be there, and that's why we got over the bigger uh, ad agencies, we were a boutique label. And to, for us to get that deal with Microsoft because of my music background, you know, and we did the launch, and I did a bunch of cool projects at, uh, at the ad agency. I remember one of the first ones, and I was about to get fired. Because I didn't, I didn't know that world. And I was like, I let my insecurities get the best of me. And I was on the verge of getting fired because I didn't do the work. It comes back. It always comes back to work. I guess in my fear, I raised my hand to volunteer for a project. And it was um, a college program for Labatt to get more beer on like these campuses. Okay. Cool. I don't drink. I'm a square. I don't drink or smoke or anything. So I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And like, you? Like, I was on the verge. Like, I was shook. I just got to Canada. I'm like, I'm about to get fired. And I'm allergic to failure. So I have to figure out a way to do this. So I put my hand up. 
and they tell me this college program they run through how they're trying to do it and i'm like okay um we're, we have to name the projects because we have to sell them to the client so i learned a whole bunch about the college system here and i'm like well, why don't we call it osap i'm like osap for a beer campaign i'm like yeah instead of the what is it, the ontario student assistance program we're going to call it the ontario's stereo assistance program and partner with jvc and whoever has the highest beer check their whole bar will get totally outfitted with jvc materials and all the kids who come there get a clock radio from jvc and some other equipment they're like cool and when i did that and they saw how i married those things they're like okay you did that do this one so it was a strip club program ah. the strip club program was hilarious because they're like how do you sell alcohol in a place that's 85 percent dark 75 85 85 percent dark so i came up with this glow in the dark campaign for the point of sale materials and all the dancer stuff and had we not gone to do research it sounds funny when i say it we would have failed we had to actually go to these clubs and we found like we went up at lunchtime one year or one day and i had my merch person and our creative director with me and we're sitting there and i'm like okay we're not getting any dances <laughs> and i'm asking and i was like do you mind me asking why did you put the towel down on this guy's lap when you went to dance for him she goes oh these guys come in from um construction sites and demolition sites and they have asbestos on the and I, I told you almost <laughs> bopped, and I'm like, because yeah. she's naked and she's dancing on her like but we ended up selling more lap dance towels than I knew even existed because I asked the question. There you go. So that was a successful program. I'm like, I can do this. First of all, what agency was it? Oh, it's an uh, old agency that no longer exists called, called Echo. I know Echo. Yeah. Echo is always reaching. So that must have been you. Always pushing the envelope. That must have been you. That must I have been you. I can't say anything. You're so, again, you're so philosophical. After speaking to you last week, I'm like, do you have any intentions of writing a book? I don't know. I, other than the book about the class I taught, which was, this is 25 years ago this year, um, is when I taught that first class uh, at UMass, the uh, edutainment, the impact of hip hop in American culture. This would have been an ideal time to write the book. One of my, I still keep in touch with one of my favorite students from that class. He is my writing partner when we write scripts together. I never wrote a script before in my life, but I said, I saw a movie. I'm like, somebody paid for this. I could do that. And so I did it. I mean, I, I, wish, I wish I could tell you that I went through some course and it's not to disrespect the process of that craft. But I recall when I was a rap editor, a music editor at Rap Pages Magazine from LA, you know, I was working out of New York, the late, great John Singleton, uh, who's incredible piece snowfall just ended if you got a chance to see that that story of uh, snowfall that was created by john singleton um the, the great auteur was shooting the remake of shaft in new york city in like 2009 2000 and so i went out to do an interview with him and i went to his editing suite in times square and we sat and we talked and we got really i guess we got kind of cool and he was still teaching at um usc film school so a little bit later after i started writing the script one of my students he asked me to come out so i fly out to la and i'm in the class and it's all these people who were like 
respected writers in the industry, in Hollywood, were on this panel, and it was me. So when they introduced me and they asked me what I wrote, I said, oh, I wrote a script already, but it's not been optioned out or anything like that. I said, why are you here? And that's when my grandmother started to kick in. That's when New York started kicking in. Oh, hold up, hold up. Trust fund babies? I know that, you know, because I didn't go to school to do what I'm doing, but I'm on this stage. You know, I know that daddy didn't pay $150,000 a year for me to come to film school, but, um, you know, um, everything I do, and I told him the three steps. Everything I do in this life is based on three steps, setup, execution, follow through. You know how I wrote this story? Okay. First step, the setup. I know a story. The second step, the execution. In that story, there are people. Here's the follow through. It's going to knock your socks off. In that story, where there are people, from time to time, they speak to one another. Interior, Air Canada Center. <laughs> Sandra and Will walking toward one another. Sandra, hey, Will. Will, hey, Sandra. That's what I wrote. Questions? Silence. Couldn't say anything because at its base level, its most broken down level, the depth of that thing starts there. How we communicate. Is it effective? Is it ineffective? So understanding that I was teaching my class this way, I was going to think about how I was going to write the script this way, how I was going to get this contract that I talked about today. How do I effectively communicate what I want while satisfying what the person who I'm exchanging this cultural currency wants as well? That's what I wake up with every day. The desire to figure out how to best communicate with everyone that I'm dealing with. Okay, so how long did you play basketball for? Well, I stopped when I was 27. So after the, um, you know, the, the, the tryouts with the NBA teams and playing at Caracas, Venezuela and Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, Brest and Marseille in France and finished up in Barcelona, I was 27 years old. So, you know, five, six, seven years. Um, it just, it was hard. I just had a young child. It's hard to globe trot him. Wow. And his mother and I weren't uh, together at the time, but we're still cool. We're super cool. And it was just tough. So I'm like, okay, I got to settle in. Figure out what's next. And somehow I figured it out. This is stuff I want to do. I was working at the label and I did the, you know, the first ever online concert of Black Music History with Ghost Capitan and Raekwon. Like that's something. And then went on to teach the first, day. like, I feel like I'm retreading a little bit, but that's what I wanted. And so I figured out how to get it. And that's been kind of my MO ever since. You know, I let, once I left Epic, I ended up getting UMAC. I right. just sat and watched for years. I watched for like four years before I even said anything. But even before that, my guy, Paul Parhar, aka Mastermind. Oh, I know was Paul a legend well. In this country, right? Oh, yeah. Um, we became He's a sweetheart. Friends. Because I knew him through Russell Peters and the show they did back in the day, and Axel and, and all those guys. Just send the music yep. up here. When Flow, first urban station in the city, was forming, they didn't want to do it right. They wanted to pay kids to host the morning show, which is like your major generating or revenue generator. If you have to put some kids through a boot camp in order to do radio, you probably already lost. And they did. After a week, it was done. Oh, yeah. That was brutal. Again, being somebody who wasn't from here and seeing that on the outside looking in, 
I told Paul, and he he can tell you the story. Ask him the story about how we did the monitor. Like most people don't know what a radio monitor is, but we monitored the station for 24 hours. We actually mm-hmm. recorded the station for a full day on VHS tapes. So 18 of the hours are actually CRTC monitored hours. We right. recorded those. So for the 18 hours, we recorded three VHS tapes, noted the clocks, the breaks, everything that happened, the song that was played. We did all of that. Paul was disgruntled because he thought, and I thought, well, like we had the plan before the station even opened, that he was going to be the, the program director and I was yep. going to be the, op, the um, GM and operations manager of the station. Oh, I wasn't even in the country yet. We submitted everything to that. How do I? How do you think I knew about the slave family? Like I did all my research before I even got in the country. And when I got here, that was the, we executed the plan. And then we did the uh, monitor and we sent it to Gary Slate's right-hand man, Bob Harris. Actually, I asked for, well, Bob came later. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm saying this backwards. So I'm like, who was in charge when he was mad about not getting the job at uh, Flow? I said, well, who was in charge? He goes, the people at Flow, Fitzroy, and all that. Like, no. It's Canada, my dude, is, 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 you know, 2000 and whatever. No disrespect, Fitzroy is not running anything in Toronto like this. Yeah. There is someone else, and it's not a denigrate Fitzroy. He's done a great job, but I understand what Canada is. I understand the politics. I mean, politics. Sorry. Said that wrong. <laughs> um, we found out it was exactly who I said it was. And his dad, Alan, used to own the Raptors. So that's how I first met. Yep. But went to him, asked for a meeting. When we pulled up, they thought I was the driver for Paul. Like, Paul, they thought I was his driver. I'm like, no, I'm the one who called the meeting. It was hilarious. Oh, no. Tell you all, he'll tell you all this. We went to the meeting with our monitor, and he had Bob Harris, who was his radio guy. Because Gary didn't do anything from a radio standpoint. No. I don't understand this thing. And they looked at it, and they were looking at us. I'm like, they didn't say anything, but they told us later, like, we talked after you guys left. and like, how in the hell did they know how to do this? End up opening up live in Calgary. And yep. Paul was the APD out there, music director. And I consulted for them for as long as it was open. You get involved, you get engaged, and I learned more. And people were like, yo, we know what you did with you know, Wu-Tang, and you did with Buff, and you did all this other stuff. And you taught that class, which you wanted to be a part of UMAC. Not really. And then Farley Flex, I had a conversation with Farley Flex, and he's like, you should take it. I don't know if it was a setup or not, but, you know, we did what we did in that time. And it was amazing to be the first American or non-Canadian president of the Urban Music Association of Canada. Uh, I was able to, to connect with Drake. He didn't know who he was. I didn't watch Degrassi. They came out and auditioned like everybody else. And he won the audition with a Replacement Girl. I did, I'd never heard the song before. He just had an aura about an aura about him, and, and you knew you could see it. And yeah, he did. The meeting at the Stylus Awards with his mom and his uncle at the back bar at Palais Royale. Like I'll never forget that 2007. He's like, "Yo, we know what you did, Wu Tang. Wonder if you could help us." I'm like, "My dude, I'd be stealing money from you. I don't have the energy to do this anymore. Not, not in the way you need it done." But it was a good conversation, and uh, I'm cool with him and Morgan and all those guys over at OVL. So, shouts out to them for all the success they've had. But I had to be, again, it's talking about being honest and being intentional. I knew that I didn't have, like, I was on the road with Wu-Tang, Matt, Michael Jackson. Like, have you ever moved around with Michael Jackson, Bless Day, or Prince? But that's oh, I, Okay, I'm, just for a second, I'm that's, sidebarring. I have to sidebar. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about you, what, you were touring with Michael Jackson? 
Yeah, because I worked at Epic Records. Right. At Sony. So, so he, was one, he was one of my artists, you know, Luther Vandross, Babyface, like Sade. Like, we were going to Berlin. And you can't fly like Michael Jackson to Berlin. I was just on the party. I wasn't organizing anything. I just wanted, I was a part of it. I mean, you know what? The better story is telling when you first, when I first met it. That was okay. the best. So they were doing a thing at MTV and people found out Michael Jackson's at MTV and Times Square was jammed up. He had to go back to the Sony building. We're at 55th and Madison in New York City. Times Square is on the west side of the island. Sony's on the east side of the island. And they couldn't get him out of Times Square because he was so jammed up. And there was no way we could drive across town. They were trying to figure it out, like, it's never going to make it in time. So they take him to the west side helipad. They put him in the helicopter and fly him on the top of the building and bring him down to the executive offices. So when I get upstairs to the meeting, they're like, it was crazy, the amount of security and all this. It was wild. I'd never been there. Like, you move with Michael Jackson like you're moving with the president or something. It's crazy. I remember he was eating a cucumber sandwich. I remember eating a cucumber sandwich. And his bodyguards are standing there. Mr. Jackson looking forward to working. There's the Blood on the Dance Floor album that we had when I was there. I think Dirty Diana was on that album. I was like, blame, blame my heart or blame my mind, not my heart for that story. But I think it was Dirty Diana was a big song of that album. It was Smooth Criminal. I can't remember. I'm like, Mr. Jackson, I'm looking forward to meeting you and working with you, blah, blah. Shook his hand. He goes, call me Michael. I'm like, wait, whose voice is that? My man pulled me to the side, like, listen, they see me as that five-year-old kid. So my voice, like, but my voice, I'm, when I'm just speaking and chilling, it's not the same thing, which no tripped me out. Not that it was like just be deep baritone or something, <laughs> and told, but it was just sounded different. If they Who feel knew? like I'm being aggressive, but Michael was an aggressive guy. Like, there's a reason why he bought all the Sony catalogs. Yeah. Sony TV catalogs. Like, he was aggressive. So I'm from Gary, Indiana. Dog, come on, be for real. Like, he was very aggressive about his business. Wow. He's like, look, if I come off in a certain way, I don't attract a certain audience anymore. So that's part of what we're doing. I just want you to, you know, keep this between us. But I'm just letting you know that Michael Jackson and Michael Jackson, too. It's like, cool. Like, man, I just met. And we didn't have, like, you know, smartphones with cameras on them. So you're not thinking about, I'm standing here, let me take a picture with Michael Jackson. I'm just meeting him for the first time. I want to look like a groupie. Like, you had that thing, too, as a professional. You want to be in the picture, but you don't want to seem like you're like, yeah, so it was different. And I'm mad that I never actually took photos with him because it was an amazing time for the time that I worked at Epic to, to have had all the artists and some of the projects we had working with Jamiroquai, you know, breaking Jamiroquai in America and North America really was a big deal for me because nice. we did all that stuff. And that's how I met Kanye West as a result of doing that thing, which is hilarious. Why? This is what I'm talking about. When you talk about cultural currency being exchanged, we did. I had to do a mix show contest because they didn't know where to put Jamiroquai on radio in America. I can see that. There's no format that they could go, yeah, this sounds too urban for us, it, it, uh, adult, uh, contemporary. It's too, it's, it's too, too, too urban for, uh, AC. No, we're not doing that. And urban radio is like, mm, I don't know. What is that? <laughs> so I had to go through mix, show, mix shows where, you know, with anything, like you start from the ground up, you have to find people who can make that thing happen. So they came to the rap guy, I use my air quotes for those who can't see, and said, we need you to break this record. I'm like, oh, great. But I love Jamiroquai. So it was easy for me. And I did a mix show contest. 
and all my mix show DJs do a remix, which Jason would never approve. Jason, who's Jason Keys, the head of Jamiroquai, would never approve it, but it didn't matter. It was the optics. So the winner would get like $5,000, 5,000 um, pressings of the single with their name on and everything else, their remix, whatever. Uh, a $500 gift card from Adidas. And, you know, $500 were, they got a PlayStation, the first PlayStation, because I can order on my computer. The 90s were a great time in the music industry just to give away stuff. Oh, heck yeah. Robust economy. That was the incentive. All of them did the remixes. And the person who won the remix contest was a, a name you've probably heard a couple times on any Kanye West album or song, or a lot of songs, I should say, instead of any. DJ Ferris Thomas from WGCI in Chicago. Okay. Ferris, they can't stop this. That's who he's talking. So Ferris Thomas wins the, the contest and he says, well, you know, I appreciate it, but I have to tell you the truth. I didn't do the remix. You know, Dion, which is no idea, another producer in Chicago who produced Common and everything else. He goes, he just turned his name around and said, Dion, it's no ID. And, oh, uh, no way. And no ID said, um, he goes, no ID's uh, protege, this kid named Kanye West, did this beat, this remix. So we fly him into New York and we fly Kanye and, and uh, no ID and um, Ferris into New York. We tell them what we're going to give them and everything else. And our boss, Ron Sweeney, who was not a music guy, he's a lawyer, was like, listen to the, listen to the drums of his keyboards. And like, we're kicking each other under the table, like laughing at him, even though he's our boss, but he was in charge. And so Kanye wanted to rap, but he couldn't rap. Like he was not good at rap. His music was crazy. And I flew the idea that we should do like, Motown had with the Funk Brothers having an in-house production team or that Puff, like Puff did, the Hitman at Batboy. Ron didn't want to do the expense for it. And I'm like, we could hire Kanye. He could be the head of it. Do what you want to do. And any artist that comes through here, we'll produce for them. Like, we'll have it all in-house. It made sense from a label standpoint. It made sense from an economic standpoint. We never did it. So we didn't sign Kanye West. When we had an opportunity to sign Kanye West. I remember seeing him at the uh, Nike 25th anniversary for Air Force Ones in 2007, telling him I still had that, that tape. And he was like, oh, I need that back. And I'm like, no, I'm going to eBay that one day. Trust me, the amount of money I'm going to get for that, that tape, because it's like, I have it for the you remix. Yeah, I still have it. Of course you I have do. it. Can we it, play it on I the show? The, no, no, no. I don't, when I say I have it. <laughs> It's in storage. I don't have it with me right now. Who walks yeah. around with a DAT tape? For those who don't know what a DAT tape is, it's a digital audio tape. But you used to, you know, if you wanted to record on the fly, and have it with me all the time. And like, yo, Kanye did this remix. When he became famous, I used to have it all the time. And now I still have it. So I have it. Wu-Tang um, demos that RZA gave me. Oh, I'm a product of a youth misspent. Do you ever keep in touch with these guys? Because you... Uh, Rizzo more. I haven't spoken to Kanye maybe since 2007. I, I can't remember the last, it's probably the last time. And that was at the award or the, uh, Nike event, um, New York City, 2007. Yeah. It's probably the last time I spoke to him. What about P. Diddy? Cause you guys were really tight. Diddy, um, maybe 2010, 2011. Yeah. I don't remember. I don't recall like any time after that. Although like, his president of Bad Boy, my man Harv Pierre, like we, we all work together. I still know Harv. They went to school together at, Harv, at uh, Howard. He and oh. Harv went to school together. So, you know, Harv was the one who cut us out of the, um, what's the video? One more chance video. It was oh, me really? and my guys. We were doing security at the front door. We the video. <laughs> we're standing in and the heavy D walks between us and says, nobody else can get in the, in the party. 
and Harv cut that part out. But in the party, if you see there's a really tall guy doing his hands like this. That's you. You can't see my You can only see my hands. Tall well, guy I'm, in there. I'm going to YouTube like it after we're done. And, and we did not shoot that video in Brooklyn. Where? We shot it in the city. We shot it in New York. New York. We shot it in, I think it was like 94th in Columbus. And a brownstone there, but it was supposed to be in Brooklyn. But that's wow. what That's a part of our job. We always wanted to be in the video and hang out the party because it was a good party that night, too. Oh, my gosh. I wish I knew you then. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. No, you don't. You know, I said you should write a book, but really you should do a documentary. I should call that's Kwame Mason. Do you know Kwame? Of course I do. Well, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Of course I do. I actually bought Jerry Heller from the, the guy who used to manage NWA. I brought him to Edmonton when Kwame was on the radio out there and brought him to his show and we talked about the NWA breakup from his standpoint. And then I did a thing called Face Off where he talked about Suge. Like, it was at the Western Canadian Music Awards and I brought him out there for that. And this is part of the reason why like my relationships being on the factor board, advisory board, and they're like, hey, um, who can we bring that can speak to this thing? And like, well, I know Jerry, Jerry Heller, and they laughed. And I said, what, what's funny? And then I make a phone call, and they said, as long as you don't get me on one of those puddle jumpers, I'm cool. I'm like, where do you think you're going to, like, Nome, Alaska? You're coming to Edmonton. It's a city, dude. Like, he, I'm dead serious. He's like, he thought he was going to be on one of those little, like, um, propeller planes. I'm like, stop. So we got him up there. And we did a bunch of stuff with him. And I think he passed a little bit after that. I wouldn't say that we were like great friends, but I just knew Jerry. Uh, I had met Jerry for the first time when I was in university. As a matter of fact, in Hawaii, we're playing the Maori Classic like in 1990 or 91. Um, cause I was a division one student athlete playing basketball out there and ran into Easy E, plus his dad, Jerry on the beach. Like Easy E claimed he wanted, you know, I want to be low key out here. I'm like, money. It's like 85 degrees. You're wearing a bomber jacket, uh, like a Chicago, um, was it Chicago White Sox? Cause everything was black and white. And the White Sox hat with a big jerry curl. It's hot as hell and you're wearing a coat. Somebody's going to notice you. I don't care how small you are. They invited us to a party later on that night and a couple of my teammates were shook. They didn't want to go to the party, but a couple went with me and we went to the party for a little bit and we, we left. That was the last time I saw Easy E alive, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say maybe that's why he was wearing his coat. He just was sick. Or no, that's something. a lie. That's a lie. That wasn't the last time I saw him alive. I saw him alive again in LA, but it was like brief. But that was one of the last time we actually had like real interaction. But that was a trip. You know, that would you, be. I didn't think about it until you asked or we started talking about this. Uh, that, was that the last time I saw Easy alive? I think it was. I have to think back, but I mean, that's 30 something years. Again, you know, blame my mind, not my heart. Yeah. I want to be able to share the thing, but. What's the one artist that you've worked with that's that's left um, left something like a legacy in your mind? Mm, that's a good question, though. I mean, Michael Jackson, Prince, like it's that's easy, that would be easy, but or even Notorious P.I.G. or Craig Mack. Craig Mack showed me a lot about him as a person when we would go to like consignment shops and one stops, and and when we were touring, he spoke to everyone in the building. It didn't matter. His song at the time was bigger than Biggie's song. Like, Flavor in Your Ear was the thing. Oh, yeah. Craig talked to everybody like they knew, like he knew that. And it, I watched him do that. But I think if I had to say any artist, maybe this is a boyhood thing. They always say never meet like your idols. I didn't idolize anyone, but 
he was definitely somebody I admired was Lawrence Christian Parker. You might hmm. know him better as Knowledge Reigns Supreme over nearly everyone. If you take yeah, the first yeah. letter of what I just sung, you spell his name, K-R-S-1. Chris, knowing his brother, like I played basketball with Kenny, his brother. I've known Chris for years. I mean, anytime you have a conversation with Chris, it's not really a conversation. It's Chris talking to you, listening. Oh, God, Stevie Wonder, maybe? Oh, it's, it's so many. I could say Mary, Mary J. Blige, because her, her story is always interesting. You know, but having the opportunities where we worked with so many different types of artists. I could say Sade. I was in love with her when I was in high school. Listen, I used to be embarrassed to tell this story when I was a kid. I was really embarrassed. It is what it is. When I was 16, I wrote Sade three love letters. The third one was to break up with her. They said, like, <laughs> dead serious, like, yo, you're not holding up your end of the bargain. It's going to hurt me more than it does you. Like, I was wilding out. Five years later, in the Rhythm Nation, Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation tour, I'm backstage Madison Square Garden. Who's 20 feet away from me? Helen Fulasade Adu. And my friend Sincere is like pushing me in the back going, yo, go talk to him. Man, you push me again. Stop. I'm going to talk to her. So I walk over to her and tell her, Mr. Du, how are you? My name. She saw I had all access. So it wasn't like some random coming up on her. I'm like, Mr. Du is, you know, uh, my name is Will, blah, blah. I have to tell you something. I told her about the letters. She laughed and she kissed me on the cheek. My face was dirty for a week and a half because I was sleeping like this. I would not wash that side of my face, those big lips. Please. Five years later, I'm working at Epic. <laughs> and I guess she got arrested for something in Jamaica. And we went down to get her out of jail and the whole night. Like, they didn't put her in jail. They had her in a holy holding cell. I mean, shot at energy. And I was really surprised that cops in Jamaica stopped anybody for anything. You could have bales of weed on the back of your truck and not stop you. But they stopped Sade because she was there. She had a compound there and everything. Um, when we get her out, I'm like, Mr. Dew, are you okay? She goes, yes. I said, do you remember me? She goes, yes, I do. My 16-year-old lover. I started cracking up. Oh, wow. She <laughs> the remembered. Fact she even, because, I mean, when I first met her when I was at the label, we talked about it before. I didn't think she would remember that because she was in a state where she was pissed. And I just asked her if she was okay. Again, these experiences, these are the experiences you walk away with. I didn't talk to you about money or how much money I made doing it. Like, these, these are experiences. Those have the value for me because at the end of the day, it's stuff I've done, but I'm more excited about what I'm doing tomorrow. That's 4421. Here we are today talking about new projects and your love for basketball. Because you had such an incredible experience in your basketball career, now you're making other players' dreams come true. Uh, we are facilitating the environment. I would never take credit for someone else's effort and work. You know, it's like building a well. You can't force people to drink from it. They make the choice, and these people have made the choice in the well we've built. is Full Court 21. We really like the vehicle. It stands out because no one else is or can do what we're doing. We have the trademark on that one. You know, it's not a five-on-five, four-on-four, three-on-three, two-on-two, one-on-one tournament. It's one-on-five, and it sounds nuts until you see it, and you're like, well, this is what we did when we were growing up, and that's what we want to. We want to what we want to do is harken back to – those days when you were growing up, your first experiences with the game. Also, when we have it, when we had the babies out there doing our, you know, skills of development mini camp to show them that at the end of this camp, we have them stay around after we feed them. Say, look, um, we need you to help us keep the park clean because if you don't respect your soil, no one else will. So this is them being able to pay it forward later on. 
if they see examples of people who look like them, who are respecting their soil, who are respecting themselves, who are doing things not only for the game, but for the community, whether we're doing Ladies First, which is a celebration of women of color and sneaker culture and in basketball, or Acknowledge Us, which is our indigenous sneaker art event, you know, paying respect and homage to the thousands of young people who lost their lives in residential schools. I'm not indigenous. I'm not a woman. But it doesn't have to be about me for me to care about it. And I think that's part of why we utilize the platform to to speak on these things and, and use it as a way to give back, you know, whether it be to the young kids, to women, to the indigenous community here in Canada. So this is 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 how we pay it forward. What does the game entail? Is this national? Oh, yeah. Oh, we're in, uh, in five cities in Canada and we're on 40 cities in 40 cities on four continents around the world. So this is uh, it's massive. So yeah, it's it, we're growing it. So walk sure. us through. Walk us through. I say I want to join. What do I do? You would play in Toronto, the the waterfront neighborhood center, which is Queens Key and Bathurst, right on the waterfront, right in the heart of downtown Toronto. Generally, the game is played in the half court. Our game is played, of course, full court twenty one. So we play full court. So you know, you shoot, you miss, I get the rebound, and I'm going the other direction. You're trying to stop me. And in a normal game, when you're playing 21 at the park, there are no fouls. So you play until the fight starts or somebody scores 21. We try to eliminate the fight part of it, democratize the game a bit. And there are only three fouls that are allowed in the whole game. It's a 15-minute runtime game, 7-minute and 30-second first half, 2-minute okay. halftime, 7-minute and 30-second second half. When okay. you win in Canada, because I like to do it a certain way, I want to make sure that people feel incentivized. Just like I told you, I feed the young people at the end of the day. During the tournament is done, if you win and when you win, male, female, or however you gender identify. So we have two divisions, 14 to 17, team, and 18 plus open. You win over $2,500 worth of free Nike gear I give to you. Last year, we gave away an Xbox. So Xbox uh, or Microsoft Canada um, gave away like $600, $700 Xboxes with game cards and all this other stuff. Commercial Supply Company gave us bags to give away. We had all kinds of stuff. And our sponsor, eBay Canada. Like we're giving away five, six hundred dollars sneakers to little kids at the park. The winners were getting thousand dollar sneakers, Levi Jordan fours, valued at fifteen hundred dollars online when you go to eBay.ca. So we're giving those away to the winners. So I mean, we had so many sponsor partners and donors from across the country, our conveners in every city. We're in five cities, as I said: Vancouver, Toronto, uh, Montreal, Edmonton, and Halifax. And, you know, I give them a trip to come to Toronto. So I fly oh. them into Toronto, playing the All-Canadian Finals. We had it for the first time last year. Okay. And now that the pandemic and some of the COVID restrictions are kind of relaxed a bit, we're now having the All-World Finals again in New York City, uh, August 22nd of 2023. So, as I said, registration will start May 1st through Eventbrite. And you can check us out on all our social media uh, accounts. Full Court 21 CA, FC 21 All World okay. um, as FC instead of Full Court. And also at Instagram account, Bill Strickland and the number one on IG. Youth portion is free that day. It's limited to 30 people. And this year, we're adding on, now that I'm wearing the CBL stuff, if you win in your city, if you win in Edmonton, the Stingers of Edmonton, you'll get a tryout with the Stingers. If you win in Toronto, you can try it with the Brampton Honey Badgers or the uh, Scarborough Shooting Stars. When you win in Montreal, the Montreal Alliance, you'll have a tryout there. So to live out your dreams, 
even if you don't make it, it's the opportunity of that dream and experiencing that thing that we want to pay forward. I am the quote unquote rat guy. Um, I love music. I couldn't do this business if I didn't understand and love music of all kinds. So uh, I'm looking forward to, again, everything that I'm doing tomorrow gets me excited, gets me out of bed. Exciting time. And I do appreciate you uh, allowing me to share this space with you to kind of share my story a bit. Absolutely. I think we're going to have you on more than two episodes now, but I don't care. Humble by the praise and the words. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's a three-day celebration of black art and artistry, and it's free. The Mel Brown Music Festival and Symposium, hosted by KPL Central. Blues, hip-hop, opera, jazz, reggae, ska, R&B. Established stars, exciting emerging talent. If you love music, any music, you'll want to be there. Check out the website daily. New artists are still being added. The Mel Brown Music Festival, May 26th to 28th. Get your free tickets now at malbrownfestival.ca. Check this out. This is Kwame DeMond Mason, director of Soul on Ice, past president and future. You're listening to Black Exposed on 98.5 CKWR. You dig? Welcome back to Black Exposed. Tonight's artist spotlight is Saskatchewan's own Rookie, who debuted his album Worlds Apart in 2020 and gained notoriety on Canadian and Nigerian radio. He was also nominated for Hip Hop Artist of the Year at the prestigious Saskatchewan Music Awards. When he's not playing music, he's busy working for this awesome organization, Sask Music. Tonight we feature a single, Dangerous, and you can find Rookie on IamRookie.com. You didn't let us rise above, that's what you are. That's who you are to me. Whoa. I can't get enough of 
If you're a black Canadian artist and want your music heard, send us two of your radio edited songs. That means radio quality and clean versions. I can't highlight that strong enough. Send that along with your bio, photo, and your social handles to blackexposed at bell.net and you could be on Black Exposed Artist Spotlight. I want to highlight that Black Exposed is Canada's only black show on primetime FM radio with all black Canadian music. No one else is representing black Canadian artists only on the radio. Black Exposed is the place to have your music heard if you want it on FM. And also, just to let you guys know, after the broadcast, you can find Black Exposed on podbean.com, Spotify, Amazon, Samsung, and most of the podcasting apps out there. Mm, yeah, yeah. I know I guess you know I wanna ask if you still love me. Just a product of my experience. Learning to love myself through loving you. Never had someone show me how to improve. Trying to make you leave just to beat you to the punch. But somehow you still, you still. Put up with all my Nothing before you exist Nothing before you exist Nothing before you exist I'm convinced that heaven exists Cause nothing before you exist Nothing before you exist Hey No, I'm blessed and highly favored Asking God to let me see another day I'm blessed I don't have much I usually learn the hard way Gotta count Highly favored Every time that I wake up No, I'm not worthy But I got a purpose There ain't no other way But to stay prayed up Every day, every day, every day Every day I wake up Every day, every day, every day Before my makeup Every day, every day, every day yeah. Every day Every day, every day, I know I'm blessed and highly favored Asking God to let me see another day Like every day, every day, every day, every day Every day, every day, every day Gotta stay prayed up That's it for tonight's Black Exposed Special thanks to Bad Boy Records and hip-hop legend Will Strickland. Just a reminder, if you want to be part of Full Court 21 Canada, registrations open May 1st, so you can get info on your socials, Full Court 21 Canada, and it lists the cities, including Toronto, and the registration information. Also, Wednesday, May 29th, Souk, a hip-hop artist, is hosting Learn How to Record Hip-Hop Background Vocals at KPL Central from 6.30 to 8, that's May 29th, and the second annual Mel Brown Festival and Symposium, May 26th to 28th. Free tickets are available. 
there's a wonderful cast of artists added weekly but you need to register your free spot on melbrownfestival.ca seats are limited on next week's show i'm really excited about this it's all request black canadian music you can send me your request to black exposed at bell.net and you can even send a shout out with your request and I'll air it. Also next week, KPL Central CEO Mary Chevro stops by for a quick visit. I'll announce the details for the private meet and greet acoustic concert and photo op with Juno winner Carlos Morgan. That's happening before the festival. So at this songwriter circle, it's going to be very intimate. Only way you can get in it is to win. He's going to be bringing his awards. You can hold them in the photo op. The Juno and his other words are awesome. But honestly, I just want to have a photo op with his MMVA. So stay tuned for that. So if you're just getting home, if you're going to pop on some Netflix, chill with your friends in your pajamas, chill with your loved one. Stay blessed, everyone. I'm Sandra Tyler, and this is Black Exposed on 98.5 CKWR.